we tonight are going to talk about friendship and how to be a friend. Uh, that should have been the title for tonight's message, How to Have a Friend, Not How to Love a Friend. Uh, my handwriting is completely indecipherable, and uh, Lois read it as How to Love a Friend, but actually it's How to Have a Friend. Although, that's not a bad title, because uh, we all want to know how to, how to love a friend as well. And, uh, in fact, just uh, learning how to love people is a real art, something that I'm sure we're all interested in. I heard about a fellow that was rummaging around in a used bookstore, and he saw a book entitled How to Hug, and he thought, boy, that ought to be a winner. So uh, he bought it, and he took it home, and when he got home, he realized that what he had bought is one volume in an encyclopedia from H-O-W to H-U-G. <laughs> But uh, <laughs> he was kind of let down. But the Bible does tell you how to, how to be a lover, how to love people. And that's what we want to talk about tonight, how to have a friend and how to love a friend as well. And I'd like to have you turn with me to 1 Samuel 18. And uh, we want to look at the, at the friendship of David and Jonathan as an example of what friendship is. I don't know of anybody who doesn't want friends. And uh, perhaps there are people here tonight who really feel lonely. Uh, you desperately want a friend. If so, this is a, this is a passage that deals with that, with that issue. The scriptures speak so plainly and so practically to issues like that. And we want, we want to learn from this friendship between David and Jonathan concerning the nature of, of friendship, just what friendship is. Uh, you know, the, the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel, covers events that, that occurred during what's called the heroic age of Greece. Uh, these things happened just after the events that Homer, the poet, described in the Iliad and the Odyssey. And he talks quite a bit about friendship there, the friendship that uh, Achilles had with his fr uh, friend, Patroclus. And uh, that's, that's one of the themes of the Iliad. It's friendship, friendship between men. And I think what it expresses is uh, it's just the feeling that all of us have that we would love to have a real friendship, an honest-to-goodness friendship. Most great literature deals with themes that, that express the needs of mankind, and that's one. We want to have friends. And I, I think the story of David and Jonathan is placed here in the Bible uh, against the backdrop of, of a lot of the other literature in the ancient Near East that describes friendship because the world doesn't understand friendship. They can describe it, but they don't understand it. But God does. He knows how to have a friend. And that's what this passage deals with. Now, let's begin reading with uh, verse 1 of chapter 18. You have it? First Samuel 18. After David had finished talking with Saul... Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and, and didn't let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Now... The first thing you need to know is that chapter 18 follows chapter 17. And uh, that's much more profound than it sounds because 
Chapter 17 describes uh, David and his conquest, uh, his uh, defeat of Goliath. And this story in chapter 18 follows hard on the heels of the story of David and Goliath. Jonathan recognized in David a, a man very much like himself. Now, I want you to understand that, that David, you know, it, I think we have the wrong concept in our head of the kind of person David was. The picture that we conjure up is a small boy sitting under a tree with a harp and a little sheep curled up in his lap. And uh, he's a little bit effeminate, and that's David. But that's not David at all. He was a tough old bird. Uh, he was very young at this time. He's described here as, uh, in Hebrew, he's called a na'ar, which means a very young man. Uh, the word na'ar is also used in Hebrew for the braying of an ass, a donkey's bray. And uh, if you ever heard a donkey, you know their voices crack. And that's the way they referred to young men as na'ar, na'arim, because their voices cracked when they talked. So we know that when this word is used of David, he was probably a teenager very young and yet even at this young age he had uh, he'd killed a lion and a bear with his bare hands and uh, he had slain Goliath so um, you know he was quite a man even though he was a young man and Jonathan recognized in David a kindred spirit Jonathan had seen David bring Goliath down and he was drawn to David because there was a there was a, just an attraction between these two men they were both real men, and that drew Jonathan to David. Now, if you want to know what Jonathan was like, you have to go back a few more chapters to chapter 14, and uh, there's a description there of a, of a single-handed uh, encounter when David took on a, a, a garrison of the Philistines. In verse 14, it says, Now there was a detachment, uh, now a detachment of Philistines had gone out to the pass at Michmash, one day Jonathan, son of Saul, said to the young man bearing his armor, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he didn't tell his father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah and so forth. And then in verse 4, On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes and the other Senna. One cliff stood to the north toward Michmash and the other toward the, uh, to the south toward Geba. Now, I've drawn a map here of... Uh... Oh, okay. Wrong map. Uh, David, uh, or Jonathan, and Saul were here in Gibeah and the uh, Philistines were up here at Michmash. And uh, so David, or, or Jonathan, rather, and his armor bearer went out toward Geba in this direction uh, to uh, see what the Philistines were up to. There's a, there's a deep uh, valley here, a wadi, that separates Michmash from Geba. And on one side of the wadi, there is a, there's a crag that sticks straight up like this. It's called bozes. The word means shining. It's... Uh, because there are no trees on the top, and it's just a bare crag, rocky crag. On the south side of this wadi was another uh, rock called Senna. The word in Hebrew just means tooth, and it also was very just a sharp point, like so. And so Jonathan went out with his armor bearer 
to uh, see what the Philistines were doing, just to scout the situation out. And uh, so we read in verse 6, Jonathan said to his young armor-bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Uh, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Do all that you have in mind, his armor-bearer said. Go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. Jonathan said, Come then, we'll cross over toward the men and let them see us. If they say to us, Wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, we will climb up, because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. In other words, their response would indicate their cowardice. If they said, Come up to us, it would indicate that uh, they were afraid. They, they, they were unwilling to go down into the valley and meet Jonathan and his armor-bearer. But uh, if they said, we'll come down to you, then that would be an indication that they weren't afraid. Verse 11, so both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they're hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up. Uh, what, what they did was uh, to cross this uh, deep valley. They came down the side of this, of this crag, down, in, down the cliff, down into this valley, and then they ascended the cliff on the north side of, of this wadi. It's almost vertical. And it's like climbing the, uh, the ridge line of a roof. It's very narrow, and it slopes about like this. And so they were going right up this ridge, two of them, Jonathan and his armor bearer. In those days, uh, they had different weapons to use at different, uh, different distances. They used bows and arrows for long-distance fighting and javelins for medium distance and swords and, and, and uh, shields for hand-to-hand -hand combat. And the officers had an armor bearer with them who carried all this paraphernalia because they couldn't have it strapped on their back and hang on to it and do all the fighting. So this young man wasn't even armed, really. He just was carrying Jonathan's uh, weapons. So it's really Jonathan against this Philistine outpost. The odds are about 60 to 1. Verse 13, Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of half an acre. That's quite some man. He went up this little narrow uh, ridge and he would grab a Philistine and throw him down and his armor bearer would, would kill him. And he killed 20 in an area about half an acre, somewhat larger than the area of the church here. That's a real man. There's a man who had genuine faith that the Lord could defeat the Philistines whether there were few or there were many. didn't matter. He was a man who believed God. Now, that's the sort of person that, that Jonathan was, and that gives us a bit of background for understanding his character. Now, let's go back to chapter 18. He saw David after his defeat of Goliath, and he made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Now, the question is, what sort of covenant did he make? We're not told at this point, but we're given a suggestion in the fact that he took off his robe and gave it to David. In the ancient world, the robe that the crown prince wore signified that he was uh, heir to the throne. There is uh, even a letter from a group of people that lived up in Turkey 
where a king divorces his wife and he says uh, for her to take the crown prince with her and for him to leave his garments on the throne when he leaves. In other words, he was to give up his, his right to the throne. Now what this tells us is that Jonathan was willing at this point in his life to give up the throne to David. David had already been anointed king over Israel. Samuel had anointed him months prior to this, this time. And Jonathan apparently knew it. And so he's willing, even now, to give up his right to the throne uh, to David. And he gives him his robe, his royal robe, as an indication of, of that intent. And that's the covenant that he made with David, that he would see to it that David became everything that God intended him to be. That's the point. Now, in verse 5, we're told that Saul sent him, wherever Saul sent him, David was successful. And so Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. But when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. That's a very common idiom in that day. And uh, it just means that uh, David is the greater warrior. Saul's tough, but David is tougher. And it was customary for the women to come out and meet a conquering king when he returned from battle. And, and the dancing women came out and they were playing on their instruments and singing and leaping about and, and shouting, Saul has slain his thousands. David is ten thousands. And you would think that Saul would be delighted because it was David that delivered them from the Philistines because of his, his route, to, his, his, his slaughter of, of Goliath and the, and the route of the Philistines that followed. But Saul wasn't happy at all. Verse 8, Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. Now, all the way through the books of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, David and Saul are contrasted. 1 Samuel is Saul's book. 2 Samuel is David's book. And Saul is always depicted as a self-centered man. He had a very hopeful beginning. But uh, he lost his humility and his dependence upon God. And he became a very arrogant fellow. And he wanted to be a king like all the other oriental kings of that time. And, and uh, he put on a lot of, uh, of ostentatious display. And he tried to run his court like a an oriental despot and just became a self, totally self-centered, flesh-governed man. Cared nothing, really, for God's honor. He cared nothing about, the, about God's kingdom. He just cared for himself. Uh, David, on the other hand, is pictured as a man who, who hungered after God with all of his heart. You know, we, we pray in, in the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That was David's concern, that God's kingdom be established on the earth. Um, for instance, Chronicle tells us that, that the first thing David did when he came to the throne was to go get the ark. Saul let it rot in the woods for 40 years. He could care less. The ark was the symbol of the presence of God, God's rule in the nation. Saul could never care for the ark. He just let it, let it fall to pieces out in a wood. First thing David did was to go get that ark. 
because it was to him the symbol of God's rule in the nation. And David wanted God to rule in his life and rule in the nation more than anything else, but not Saul. And so Saul and Jonathan, likewise, make a very interesting contrast at this point. Saul was jealous for his kingdom. He didn't want David to be king. Jonathan, who was next in line for the kingdom above everything else, wanted David to be king. And so you have that contrast set up. The next day we read, verse 10, an evil spirit from God came forcibly, forcefully upon Saul. You know, God will give us what we want. Saul was jealous. And he wouldn't judge his jealousy. He wouldn't put it away. And so God just gave him over to a spirit of jealousy. The man went absolutely mad. He says in the end of his life, I've played the fool. God just let him do what he wanted, and he just made a fool of himself. And here he's so jealous, he's raging around, he's raving in his house while David was playing the harp as he usually did. You know, they had brought David in to play for Saul when he had these, these spells of madness, and David was playing, and Saul grabbed the javelin, and, and apparently there were two there because he tried twice to pin David to the wall. But David, it says, eluded him twice. And then in verse 12, we read that Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had left Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men, made him a field officer, got him off of his staff, his regimental staff, and he sent him out to be a field officer because he thought the Philistines would kill him if he could just get him out there in the field. But his, his strategy backfired because David had great success, it says in verse 14. Everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. The Philistines had an iron-working monopoly. They had taken all the weapons out of Israel's hands. They had to fight them with ox goads and wooden implements and weapons. Philistines uh, controlled the, uh, the uh, iron-working uh, trade. So it was mainly through strategy and through David's wise leadership that they were able to, to keep the, the Philistines at bay. So Saul proposes uh, that David marry his older daughter Merab, but as you read through the account, he, he backs out because that's getting a little close to home. When you're the king's son-in-law, you might be next in line to the throne. Then he decides in verse 20, that's not a bad idea after all, so he gives his, son Michal, his daughter Michal. says, uh, now Saul's daughter Michal was in love with David. She was going around Gibeon carving on trees. Michal loves David. And uh, Saul heard about it, and he was pleased. And he says, I'll give her to him, he thought, so that she may be a snare to him and so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So Saul said to David, Now you have a second chance to become my son-in-law. Then Saul ordered his attendants, Speak to David privately and say, Look, the king's pleased with you, and his attendants all like you. Now become his son-in-law. They repeated these words to David, but David said, You think it's a small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I'm only a poor man and little known. When Saul's servants told him what David had said, Saul replied, Say to David, The king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. But David, sort of an ordeal, he has to go through in order to win the hand of Michal. And he, he slays a hundred Philistines, and he comes back and he's... 
Instead, again, Saul's strategy backfires because David is successful and he's given me call. Verse 28, when Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michal loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. The Philistine commanders continued to go out to battle and as often as they did, David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers and his name became well known and Saul was getting more and more frustrated. Everything David did demonstrated his prowess as a soldier and as a man, as a leader. Saul couldn't win. So now he tries another method. Verse 19, he told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan was very fond of David and warned him. Now here is Jonathan's chance. All he has to do is get rid of David and he can be the king. But in first, verse 4, Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you. And what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it, and you were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Saul listened to Jonathan and took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. So Jonathan called David and told him the whole conversation. He brought him to Saul, and David was with Saul as before. See, here's a man who's willing to give away his kingdom for David's sake. He was destined to be the king. He gave it all away so that David could come back into the court and into Saul's favor. And then in verse 8 and following, war broke out again, and David went out and fought the Philistines. And they fled before him, and Saul was jealous, tried to pin him to the wall again despite his promise. But David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. That night David made good his escape, and he went home to his house, and Michal told him to flee, and she took an idol and hid it in his bed, and she put goat's hair on one end and uh, covered him up. And Saul's men came, and she said, he's sick. And they went back and told Saul, and Saul said, bring him on his sick bed, and I'll, I'll kill him in my house. And they went off to get him, and they, when they brought him in, they found out it was nothing but a wooden idol with a, with a hairpiece. And Saul was, uh, was frustrated again. So David uh, fled, verse 18, and made his escape and went to Samuel at Ramah. And he spent some time with, there with Samuel. And, and the word came back to Saul, and Saul went uh, out uh, on an excursion to kill him. And it says in verse 23 that Saul went to Naoth at Ramah, but the Spirit of God came even upon him as he walked along prophesying until he came to Naoth. And he couldn't, he couldn't hurt David. He couldn't touch him. And then in, in chapter 20, we come to the climax of the story. David fled from Naoth at Ramah, and he went to Jonathan and said, Look, what have I done? What's my crime? How have I wronged your father that he's trying to take my, my life? Never, Jonathan replied. You're not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything, great or small, without confiding in me. Why would he hide this from me? You see, Saul had made an oath that he wouldn't touch David. It's not so, he says. But David took an oath and said, Your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. 
Jonathan said, whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. And so they, they developed the scheme. There's a festival coming up, the festival of the new moon. That's what, uh, The first uh, day of every month, they had a lunar calendar. And, and the first day of the month was uh, the day of the new moon. And uh, they would gather. It was a family gathering as well as a, re- a religious festival. And David was expected to be there along with Jonathan because he was a member of David's court, one of his officers. And so David tells Jonathan to, uh, in verse uh, 6, If your father misses me at all, tell him, David earnestly asked my permission to hurry to Bethlehem, his hometown, because an annual sacrifice is being made there for his whole clan. If he says, Very well, then your servant is safe. But if he loses his temper, you can be sure that he's determined to harm me. As for you, show kindness to your servant. For you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. The word that's translated kindness here is the word that shows up all through the Old Testament for God's covenant loyalty to his people. It's not normally used between, uh, between people, but it's the word that's used for God's love. It actually means uh, liability. It's an it's a indication of the fact that God owes loyalty to those that he's taken into a covenant. When God says he's going to do something, he's bound by his own word and he'll do it. Sometimes it's uh, translated loving kindness. Sometimes like the, the, the psalm that we read on Thanksgiving is translated love. There, his love never ends. This means loyalty or liability, sense of, of indebtedness to another person. And David says, show me that kind of loyalty because you brought me into a covenant just like the covenant that the Lord made with his people. And so, uh, verse 16, So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. Then Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is the new moon. You'll be missed because your seat will be empty. The day after tomorrow towards evening, go to the place where you hid when this trouble began and wait by the stone ezel. I'll shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I were shooting at a target. They often uh, practice just as we do with a rifle or with a bow and arrow. And... uh, He was going to go out as though he were practicing. And then in verse 21, Then I will send a boy and say, Go find the arrows. If I say to him, Look, the arrows are on this side of you. Bring them here. Then come, because as surely as the Lord lives, you're safe. There's no danger. But if I say to the boy, Look, the arrows are beyond you, then you must go, because the Lord has sent you away. And about the matter you and I discussed, remember, the Lord is witness between you and me forever. So David hid in the field, and when the new moon festival came, the king sat down to eat. He sat in his customary place by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite him. And Abner, who was uh, Saul's commander uh, next in command, sat next to Saul, but David's place was empty. Saul said nothing that day, for he thought something must have happened to David to make him ceremonially unclean. Surely he's unclean. But the next day, the second day of the month, David's place was empty again. Then Saul said to his son, Jonathan, why hasn't the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? It's, uh, it's idiomatic in, in, the, in this part of the world to never mention the name of a shameful thing. That's why he calls him here the son of Jesse. He, Saul is so angry and so bitter and resentful. He doesn't even mention David's name. He just calls him the son of Jesse. 
Jonathan answered, David earnestly asked me for permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go because our family is observing a sacrifice in the town and my brother has ordered me to be there. If I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away to see my brothers. That's why he hasn't come to the king's table. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. It's exactly the same idiom, idiom that we have. He's swearing at him. Don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the nakedness of your mother? There's an inference here that, that uh, Jonathan isn't even uh, a legitimate son. That's why he expresses it this way, to the nakedness of your shame. He's, he's not your mother's son, or you're not your mother's son. You don't belong to me at all. As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established now send and bring him to me, for he must die. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. Sort of an understatement. <laughs> Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger. That second day of the month he did not eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. In the morning, Jonathan went out to the field for his meeting with David. He had a little boy with him. And he said to the boy, run and find the arrows as I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the boy came to the place where Jonathan's arrow had fallen, Jonathan called out after him, isn't the arrow beyond you? Then he shouted, hurry, go quickly, don't stop. The boy picked up the arrow and returned to his master. The boy knew not, nothing of all this, only Jonathan and David knew. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said, go carry them back to town. After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship, and that's that, that word, loyalty, a liability, a mutual liability. We are responsible for one another. We have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left, and Jonathan went back to town. And they never saw each other alive again. You see, you, you see a natural attraction forming. These two fine young heroes just are attracted to each other because they like the same things. They're the same kind of men, much the same sort of personality, sort of rough, rugged, swashbuckling types that unafraid to take on the, the world because they're men of faith. But that attraction becomes a loyalty, a mutual liability that they've incurred because they covenant together with each other. And especially Jonathan. It's Jonathan who makes the covenant because more than anything else, he wants to see God's will worked out in, in David's life. He's willing to set aside his own ambitions, his own desires, put aside his own kingship. He doesn't care a thing about himself. His goal is to see David become what God intends David to be. And he sees that as a liability. That's a debt that he's incurred. Now turn over a few pages to 2 Samuel. As you know the story, David and John, or Jonathan and Saul were slain on the mountains of Gilboa. And uh, the word is taken to David, and he's inconsolable. Hasn't seen David since they departed at, at the rock Ezel. And uh, 
In verses 17 and following of 2 Samuel 1, you have David's lament for Saul and Jonathan. David took up this lament, or pardon me, yeah, Saul and Jonathan. David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan in order that the men of Judah be taught this lament of the bow as it is written in the book of Jasher. The book of Jasher is a book that we don't have. It's been lost. The word Jasher just means righteous men. It's a book of heroes, apparently, heroes of faith in Israel. It would be an interesting book to have, wouldn't it, uh, to get more information on some of these men. And this particular lament was in that book, and uh, it was that book that the author of Second Samuel used to copy out this poem, this lament, or dirge. And this is described as a poem that was used to teach them how to use the bow. They sang songs when they practiced bowmanship, and this was the song that they sang. I don't know if you, some of you have been in the army, and you, and you know when you march, you sing all these goofy songs, which have no content, whatever. But here's a song that had a great deal of content that was intended to teach men how to be men. And uh, it goes like this. Your glory, O Israel, lies slain on your heights. It's a reference to Jonathan and Saul. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. The Philistines were the ones who, who killed Jonathan and David. And, and as I said before, it's the women meet, uh, met the returning victors. And, and so he says, don't announce it in Gath, that's a Philistine city. Uh, don't announce it in Ashkelon, that's, a, that's another Philistine city, so that the, the women won't come out and rejoice over these two slain warriors. O mountains of Gilboa, may you have neither dew nor rain, nor fields that yield offerings of grain. In other words, he, he wishes a drought on these mountains because that's where Saul and Jonathan were slain. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil. For the blood of the slain from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and gracious, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. Oh, I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than the love of women. Now, that's a remarkable statement. And a lot of people have, have uh, somehow derived the idea from this passage that David and Jonathan were involved in some sort of homosexual relationship because he describes his love as, as uh, unlike the love of any woman. He, at the time he, he sings this lament, he had two wives. And yet uh, he says that Jonathan's love ex seems to say that his love exceeded the love that he had for, for Abigail and Michal, his other wives. And this, of course, is what you find in Greek literature, uh, a sexual relationship between two men. That's the mark of a great friendship and particularly a relationship between heroes. And I recently have seen a couple of books on this particular theme, and, and both of them allude to the fact that Jonathan and David had a homosexual relationship. But that's not the point at all. The word that David uses for wonderful 
Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than the love of women, is a word that means miraculous. It's not that his love was unnatural. It was just so unusual that another man would love him like this. And, and whenever in the Old Testament they want to use love in the sense of love making, it's always in the plural. Here it's singular. And uh, the word is never used in the sexual sense, in the singular. What David saw is that here, the most amazing thing in his life, it was utterly miraculous that here was a man who loved him in a way he had never been loved before, who cared for him in a way he had never been cared for. None of his wives loved him that way, and history proves that out. And he, he didn't love his wives that way either, as a matter of fact. He had some real problems with his, with his marital relationships, as you well know. But what stood out in his mind as he looked back over his relationship with Jonathan was here was a man who really loved him. Because, you see, Jonathan wanted the best for him. Jonathan committed himself to David in order to see to it that David became what God intended him to be. And you see, that's what friendship is. It may start with a natural attraction, but a godly friendship is one that moves on to the next stage that you commit yourself. You have a liability to love that person and seek God's very best for them, to encourage them in their relationship to God, to teach them, to minister to them, to serve them, to help them be everything that God intends them to be. You know, Paul says that we owe one another a debt of love. He says, don't, uh, in Romans 13, he says, don't, uh, don't, uh, uh, how's it go? Don't keep on owing anything. In other words, don't go in debt to anyone uh, with money, except to love one another. Have you ever thought that through, that we actually owe a debt of love to one another? That's a liability that we incur when we form a friendship. Uh, Paul puts it another way, too. Look at Philippians 2, 3, where he states the same principle. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. In other words, for Paul, a friendship is not something that uh, we normally think of friends as someone who will be friendly to me. And we, we walk into a new situation, into a new school or into a new office or a new, new apartment building or a new neighborhood. And we say, where is a friend? Where is someone who will befriend me? And if no one befriends us, then we feel lonely and we feel rejected and we start feeling sorry for ourselves and self-pity always makes you depressed and you know how that goes and you just go down and down and down because we're looking for the wrong thing. Let me ask you a question. Who is the friend in the story of Jonathan and David? It was Jonathan. Jonathan was the friend. A friend is not someone who befriends you, you see. A friend is someone who goes out and befriends another. Now, we look for friends. That's always our emphasis. Where's a friend? I'm lonely. God, send me a friend. Where's someone who care about me, who'll look out for my interests, who'll minister to my needs, who'll encourage me when I'm down, who'll talk to me when I want to talk, who'll be a listening ear to me? 
And you know, that, that attitude will just, it'll kill you off. Because you, you'll seldom find someone like that. That's a sort of bottomless pit. The more you get, the more you want. To the contrary, attitude ought to be, where is someone whom I can be friend? Where is someone to whom I can be a friend? You know, the world is full of lonely people. There are a lot of you sitting right there that are lonely. And you came into this audience and you thought, now somebody's going to befriend me and I won't be lonely anymore. But, you know, it's just backwards. You need to find someone else who's lonely and be a friend to them. And if you do that, you'll never be without friends. The whole world will be full of friends. You'll never lack a friend. You walk on that high school camp. You know, I, we're all the same way. We walk into a room where we don't know anybody and we just feel kind of uptight. You know, what do they think about me? How do I look? Are they going to like me? You know, and we just kind of play off of people's reactions to us. If they're a little bit cold and we withdraw, and that's an unfriendly group. We're all like that. But grace, you see, turns it around so that when you walk into a room, you say, Lord Jesus, where is someone that I can be friend? Where's someone I can be a Jonathan to? Someone whose needs I can meet. Well, then you've got a whole room full of friends. Or people come into to our body and they say, My, my, these people are cold. And maybe we are. But see, maybe the problem is that, that we're cold. That we're not reaching out. We're not being a friend. And that's why we feel that the body is cold. Remember the uh, question that the fellow asked Jesus about uh, oh, the issue of who is my neighbor. And uh, Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan, the point of which is the next person you meet is your neighbor. Um, we, you know, that really answers a lot of questions for us. Who should I love? The next person you meet that has a need. Who's my friend? And by the way, the words are interchangeable in the Old Testament. Who's my friend? Well, they're sitting all around you. People that have needs. So uh, you should never be without a friend. Uh, as Proverbs puts it, he who would have friends must show himself what? Friendly. Not wait for somebody to befriend you, but find someone whom you can befriend. And, uh, you know, that was what characterized Jonathan's life. And that's why at, at the end of Jonathan's life, David looked back over that relationship and he said, that was a miraculous love. Nobody ever loved me like that. Not my parents. David, uh, I'm convinced, came from a, a sort of checkered background. If you look at his genealogy in, in, uh, in Chronicles, it's all messed up. I think he was an illegitimate son. And, uh, uh, you know, when Samuel came to, uh, to anoint uh, one of one of Jesse's sons, David, was off with a sheep. Jesse didn't even call him into the house. Uh, it was David who said, Though mother and father have rejected me, though yet the Lord will take me up. I think he was utterly rejected. Just a lonely uh, person as he grew up. And Jonathan sensed that. And Jonathan moved in David's direction and served him and ministered to him and cared for him and uh, discharged the debt of love that he had for David. And he saw to it that David became a king. He wouldn't rest until David became a king, even though it meant that he had to lay aside his own ambitions and interests. So uh, be a friend. 
Find someone in need and just be a friend. Tomorrow, when you go to school or when you walk into that office, say, Lord, show me someone in need. Don't let me sit around and wait for somebody to meet my needs. Show me someone in need. Or wherever you are, be a friend. Let's, let's stand together and pray, shall we?